Well, last time we learned that loving our neighbor, loving our neighbor sums up and fulfills the commandments of the Lord. In Romans 13, 8, it says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now today we're going to see how this command to love one another is carried out in a real world situation in the church at Rome. And as we look at this situation that was taking place in their church, we will learn how to deal with similar situations in our own relationships with each other. So flip over to Romans chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So the situation in the church at Rome, it's not about, uh, you know, diets, that they're on, and one thinks one diet's better than another. It's something a little more complicated than that. The, the situation in the church at Rome, as best as we can determine, based on the content of Paul's letter, is that there were some of the Jewish Christians in the church who were reluctant to give up aspects of their religious heritage as Jews, such as dietary restrictions and sacred days. For them, these things were so important that to not continue to practice them was a sin. Other Jewish Christians in the church embraced their newfound freedom in Christ, not feeling obligated to follow the restrictions of their Jewish heritage. And still others in the church, the Gentiles, the, the people who were not Jews, didn't have a Jewish background, so they had no regard at all for any of the Jewish observations. <clears throat> well, these differing points of view we're creating divisions in the church, with each group thinking their self the more godly among them, seeing the others as inferior and even as compromised Christians. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, he writes about a similar situation that was taking place in the church at Corinth. But there, it was some of the Gentile believers who had scruples about eating meat, which had previously been offered in worship to pagan gods. Now, I mention that so that we understand that this situation taking place here that we're reading about was not something isolated to Jewish believers. It's not something isolated to Christians in the first century either. Believers in our own day have disputable matters that they struggle with as well. It can be a challenge sometimes to know what is even considered a disputable matter. There is not a universally acknowledged list of disputable matters that we can consult. That would be nice if there was. See, deciding what is a disputable matter is a matter of dispute among Christians. 
Disputable matters can change over time and from one culture to another. Something that was considered a taboo many years ago may be universally accepted among believers now. Uh, conversely, something that was accepted without a second thought centuries ago may be seen as something never to be done in our own day. The same is true for different cultures. One culture is okay with something that another culture forbids. So at the risk of stepping on some toes, since not all Christians agree on these being disputable matters, here's a quick list of some of the things that are considered disputable matters between Christians in our day. Family structure. Roles in marriage. Music styles that are acceptable for worship. Listening to non-Christian music. Uh, acceptable movie and TV ratings that are okay for a Christian to see. Hair length, facial hair, public displays of affection, drinking alcoholic beverages, using tobacco, dress codes, personal hygiene habits, women as pastors, how to understand the early chapters of Genesis, how to interpret the book of Revelation, dancing, uh, the use of modern technology, and last but certainly not least, politics. There are lots of other issues, but hopefully that gives you an idea of the kinds of things that are considered disputable matters. In this passage, Paul refers to the people who are hanging on to religious practices from their past as those whose faith is weak, it says in verse 1. And Paul refers to people who have taken hold of their freedom in Christ as strong. We see him use that word in Romans 15.1. Now, those labels may sound harsh and judgmental to us, but they're not intended by Paul to be understood that way. In verse 1, he says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. The strong are told to accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, some observations. First is I want us to see that the burden of accommodation is placed on the strong when they are around the weak brothers and sisters, they are to accommodate their scruples. In verse 15, we're told, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. This is the bedrock determining factor. Are we acting in love toward our brothers and sisters in what we are doing? The strong are told to accept the weak without quarreling over the issue. Now, I think this is interesting. We're told arguing over who's right and who's wrong is not the way to handle these things. As we get further into the passage, this is going to be elaborated on even more. For now, I want to call our attention to this. It's our tendency to argue about who's right. But rather than argue, we are told to accept one another. And that word translated accept, it means to receive, to welcome, to take into one's company. 
Does this mean that we're never allowed to express our opinion about these things? Well, of course not. But how we do it and why we do it are important. We should choose love for one another over having our side represented and defended. Now, verse 2 through 4 it says, one person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. These verses tell both the strong and the weak, both the ones who eat everything and the ones who are only eating vegetables. For example, these are religious scruples. This is not you know, a fight between the vegans and the meat eaters. That's not what's going on here. It's, it's a religious scruple that they're observing here. But it says both of them are not to look down on the other. They're not to think themselves superior to the other. They're not to see the other one as sinful. They're not to expect the other one to have the same scruples as themselves. Now, why are we to accept the other person? It tells us because God has accepted them. And if God has accepted them, then why, how can we do otherwise than to do the same? They are His servant, just like we are His servant. He's the boss, not us. They're accountable to him. They stand or fall before him and under his authority. And to be clear, he says, they will stand because he's able to make them stand. You know, there's a saying in recovery programs, mind your side of the street. Well, the same idea is what is being expressed to us here. We need to mind our own side of the street. We don't have any authority to say what happens on the other side of the street. The one who owns both sides of the street and the street itself is the Lord. And both of us are just tenants living here at His pleasure. Verse 5, he says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So there were some in the church at Rome who considered some days more sacred than others. For example, some of those with a Jewish background continued to look at special feast days to be particularly sacred, and they certainly treated the Sabbath as a special day every week. In our own day, some Christians consider certain days more sacred than others do. For those with a Jewish background, then the Sabbath or Saturday was sacred. And for some Christians, they see Sunday in the same way as sacred. 
There was even a time in our country when certain activities weren't even allowed on Sunday. Certain kinds of TV was not broadcast on Sunday, and this kind of thing even. Well, other days that are often treated with a special sacredness in our day by uh, some believers is Easter and Christmas, for example. We're told here in Romans that whatever our personal convictions might be regarding some days being sacred or not, or whether it's okay to eat certain foods or not, or convictions about any other disputable matter, each of us should be fully convinced in our own mind in verse 5 about what is right for us to do before the Lord. And then, no matter what side we land, on these various things we are to do them to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. And so whatever we do, we do it for Him and give thanks to Him for the opportunity and the privilege to do it for Him and to Him. Notice that everyone, everyone, no matter which side of an issue that we're on, we're to do it for the same reason, for the same motivation is to drive us. We are to be motivated by our love for the Lord and as an expression of worship, tempered by our love for one another. Verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. For it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Jesus taught this about judging one another over in Matthew 7, verse 1. He said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Our judging will be reflected back to us. We will be judged by the same standards we use against someone else, he says. Which with, so with whatever measure we use, we will be measured. Now, knowing that, it ought to motivate us to be very, very generous with our judgment of others. We should be pouring out grace and mercy to others rather than criticism and condemnation. We should go as easy as we can on others, because we want it to go easy with us. In verse 12 of Romans 14, he says, Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. William Barclay wrote, We stand before God in the awful loneliness of our own souls. To him, we can take nothing but the character which in life we have been building up. If we're a believer, trusting in Jesus for our salvation, this judgment is, is not a judgment to determine our salvation. That is secure in Christ. But even as believers, the quality of our life is going to be judged by the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So in verse 13, 
He says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. We're told clearly, stop passing judgment on one another. Sadly, judging one another is something that Christians far too often engage in. Everybody considers themselves an expert on how others should behave, on how they should live, on how they should do things. They nitpick one another, not over the big obvious moral issues, but over tiny, insignificant minutiae. Those who are judging others certainly don't think these issues are minutiae. They think these things are all very important. And that's part of their arrogance and their foolishness. Thinking that their opinions are so important. The truth is our opinions are not very important. And others are not nearly as interested in our opinion as we think they are. Paul warned the believers in the Galatian churches about judging each other when he wrote this in Galatians 5.15. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. We need to knock it off. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a similar thing going on in that church. And he said in that letter in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, it says, now about food sacrificed to idols. See, and this was the issue that they were disputing about, whether it was okay to eat food that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol or not. Some were totally fine with it. They go, hey, that's good steak and I'm eating it. The other one goes, no, that was sacrificed to an idol. That meat is defiled as far as I'm concerned. I cannot eat it. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. We all have an opinion. We all think we know so much. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. So instead of judging one another, tearing one another down, putting ourselves above others because of our superior knowledge and understanding of things, we're to do whatever we can to build others up, to strengthen others in their commitment to Christ. We are to encourage others rather than criticize and tear them down. We are to look for ways to help others rather than hurting them. And when we seek to help others, we're to help them in ways that they're going to consider help rather than helping them come to an understanding of the way things are. So he goes, oh, I'm going to help him, all right. He's like, yeah, that's not the kind of helping we're talking about. We need to remember that these other Christians are not our servants. They're the Lord's servants. They're answerable to him. They're answerable to him. Remember what it said in Romans 14, 4? Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Verse 14 
He says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it's unclean. So, so Paul makes it clear that none of the food restrictions that, they, that some of these uh, Christians were observing uh, are, are in effect for a follower of Jesus. They're, they're free from these things. We're free from these things. These things are obsolete and unnecessary restrictions not needing to be observed by us. Jesus, he taught that it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean and sinful, but what comes out of a person that is unclean and sinful. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So we know that all food and drink is okay for us to consume. We don't have to follow any of the religious dietary rules of the Jewish religion or any other religion. If you're making a choice <clears throat> for health reasons to stay away from certain foods, that's fine. It's your choice and you're free to make it. But we need to mind our business about the choices others are making that may be different than ours in that regard. See, it's fine if you're choosing to stay away from ice cream. But you need to keep, you, keep that to yourself because there are a lot of other Jesus-loving fools who like ice cream and they have every intention of eating it whenever they have an opportunity. And that's fine. In fact, I think that's a good thing. See, so... He says, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it's unclean. Paul, he's going to elaborate on this a bit more when we get down to verse 22. But the idea is this. Even though something may technically be okay for a person to do as a follower of Jesus, if you personally have a conviction about that thing, if you are not feeling okay about doing that thing, if you are feeling sinful about doing that thing, then doing that thing is not okay for you to do. We need to have a clear conscience about doing that thing. If we don't, then we need to not do it. Now, a quick reminder here. Paul is not saying that sin is a matter of personal opinion. He's not saying that as long as we think something's okay, it's okay. Scripture is very clear about some things being sinful. Those things are non-negotiable Lying is lying is lying. Stealing is stealing is stealing. Fornication is fornication is fornication. Gossiping is gossiping is gossiping. And so on. What we're talking about are things that are disputable matters. Things which there can be legitimate differences of opinion about. Things that are cultural or religious scruples and traditions, not commandments. Now, as said before, determining what is a disputable matter can be difficult sometimes. But we do our best. If our main motivation is to obey the Lord and love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're going to find our way through these things. 
Verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're not, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So Paul, he's now addressing the strong believer again here. And you'll notice that he keeps switching back and forth in this passage, speaking to the strong and then to the weak and then to the strong again and then back to the weak and on and on. And the idea here for us is that all of us are to show concern for one another regardless of what our personal convictions might be. So to the strong, Paul says here, if we persist in doing something that we know our brother or sister in the Lord feels is sinful, even though we know it is not sinful ourselves, we're not acting in love by doing that thing. We're being selfish because we are knowingly trumping on their scruples, causing them distress, and letting them think that we are sinning. Now, someone might complain about this and say, oh, yeah, but I like eating bacon. My brother with his Jewish dietary hang-ups needs to just get over that. When we go out to breakfast together, I'm getting bacon with my eggs, no matter how he feels about it. And to that objection, Paul replies that there are far more important things at stake here than eating bacon. I know that hits some of you right in your feels. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're to be primarily concerned for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters rather than any inconveniences we may have to put up with. This is the kind of attitude that pleases the Lord and it wins over our brothers and sisters, it tells us here. Let us, therefore, Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. The commandment for us to follow in these matters is this. Make every effort, he tells us, to do what leads to peace and mutual edifications or, or, or the building up and the strengthening of our relationships with Jesus Christ. We don't want to destroy or harm the work of God that's being done in a brother or sister's life over something like eating meat or drinking wine or any other disputable matter. This same principle should be followed for other disputable matters besides just the eating and drinking. To the, and this includes politics. Can you talk politics with one another? Maybe. If you're doing it in such a way that it leads to peace 
and mutual edification, then maybe. But if what you're doing and how you're doing it is causing division and distress and anger and brother and sister judging brother and sister, then the answer is no. That's the teaching of the word. Verse 22, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. This is the solution. When we are in the presence of other believers who don't share our convictions and scruples. Don't do the thing around that person who's not okay with it. And don't try to convince them in the moment to think like you about that thing. Keep it between yourself and the Lord. The, the risk in trying to convince the other person to think like we do about this disputable matter in that moment is that they might do the thing and not really be convinced that it's okay to do. And in that case, it will be sin for them, and we will have shared in leading them into sin. We need to give the person the time and the room to work these things out with the Lord so that they are able to always act from faith, meaning acting with a clear conscience, convinced in their heart and mind about what the Lord is pleased with. This is a principle that has application in many areas of our life. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. We should be acting with a clear conscience, convinced in our heart and mind about what the Lord is pleased with. If we are not able to do that in a particular situation, then we should abstain from doing that thing, since it would be a sin for us to proceed. Again, this is not about things that the Bible clearly teaches as sin. If something is a sin, we shouldn't do it, even if we're feeling good about it. I've, I, I'm amazed when I, when I hear people tell me, well, you know, I have a real peace about it. I'm thinking, you might have a peace about it, but that is still a sin. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I have a real peace about it. Dude, that's not okay. I don't care how peaceful you feel about it. Feelings are not our primary guide as a Christian. The Word of God is our primary guide. He continues in verse 1 of 15. He says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. But even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is really restating what he has already been saying, and he makes the points that we should put the spiritual well-being of others before our own personal convenience, which we've already been talking about, and we are to follow the example of Jesus, who put our spiritual well-being before his own personal convenience. They say denial is a river in Egypt, but self-denial is the way of Jesus that we're encouraged to follow. Self-denial. Let us take hold of what Paul says in verses 5 and 6 as a prayer for our church. That, Lord, give us the same attitude of mind toward one another that Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 7. It says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So this brings us full circle back around to the same idea that Paul opened this passage with in Romans 14.1. We are to accept each other, welcome each other, receive each other, take each other into our company. The people that we are to accept are not just our friends who think like us. But brothers and sisters in the Lord who are not like us, who don't think like us, who hold different views than we do about disputable matters, whose convictions and scruples don't align with our own, they're the ones we're to accept, not just our buddies. We're to accept one another because Jesus accepted all of us. We were all as different from Jesus as can be imagined, and he accepted us. We have no excuse to not do the same for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it says the result of our accepting one another will be praise to God. The words of Jesus from John 13 come to mind, don't they? When Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have told you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. See, the church of Jesus Christ is a beautiful work of the Lord. 
Jews and Gentiles, two people who shared nothing in common, who were coming from two very different places, who were hostile towards one another. They're now one in Christ. As hard as it was for anyone to believe at the time, God said it would happen, and it has. Jesus Christ is the great reconciler. He's reconciled us with God, and he reconciles people with one another. So we close with verse 13 today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope for the power or by the power of the Holy Spirit. All that we have read today can be summed up with that one command. Love one another. Let us practice this together. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for your good word spoken to us. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge that you lay before us. That our love for one another is more important than our opinions. That our unity with one another is more important. Lord, we pray that you would help us to care for one another and put one another's interests before our own. That we would follow the example of Jesus. That we accept each other, care for each other, Lord. And that we would be glorifying to you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.